now, uh, announcement that Mike forgot to make this morning. Um, we, on your way out, uh, the, the ushers will have a copy of the 2018 proposed budget for our church, um, along with a second sheet of paper kind of explaining some things about that. So uh, please uh, grab one of those on your way out, especially if you remember. And then we will have on December 10th, immediately after the morning service, uh, a brief members meeting where we can actually discuss and vote on that budget. So uh, please take one of those on your way out and then write it down December 10th after the morning service. We'll have a, a, a business meeting to vote for that. Thank you. Bruce, and we're continuing in chapter 11. And I'll be reading chapter 11, starting in verse 32 and reading through to verse 38. Hebrews 11, 32 to 38. Last week, we looked at and unpacked verses 32 to the beginning of 35. And this morning, we'll look at the rest of 35 through 38. But again, let's reorient ourselves to the context. Hebrews 11, 32 to 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And now notice the shift in the recipients of whom he's talking about. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, as tradition tells us of the prophet Isaiah. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins, sheep, and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. And Lord, we are in desperate need of your grace. Father, all of life is but by your grace. And now, Lord, oh, for that particular effective spiritual life-producing grace that comes from being before your living and active word. Father, graciously allow us to hear your word rightly. Graciously allow your word to penetrate deep within to our hearts, convicting us of sin. And Lord, graciously by your spirit, resurrect us to living faith, bringing us closer to Christ, in whom is all salvation and life, Father, we pray that we would find courage and be encouraged in him 
We pray this, Lord, not only for our sanctification and good, but for the fame of his name and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you've come away more and more convinced that what chapter 11 has been doing for us is not so much showing us the power of faith. It is. But more so, we've come to see the power of God. It's not great faith that is primarily the focus of this chapter. It's faith in a great God. Our confidence resting in the power of God. And it's out of this where we saw last week powerful ways in which God can and often does work within the lives of believers. God working through faith to conquer kingdoms, escape persecution, and stop the mouths of lions. But of course, if that were the whole picture, if all we saw was a picture of the victoriously faithful life, well, then the author of Hebrews, all he'd be doing is presenting to us an over-realized eschatology. That is, he'd be showing us a picture of really what life finally would look like underneath the fullness of God's coming kingdom, a kingdom where all the promises are finally obtained, where all earthly kingdoms are conquered and subsumed underneath Christ's rule, where all the mouths of all the lions are stopped and any lamb could lie safely next to any lion. That happens at the end, in the full realization of the kingdom. So you see, in one sense, all the characteristics of faith that we saw last week are nothing more than the first fruits of God's inbreaking kingdom. We need to remember that Hebrews has been continually teaching us that God's kingdom is both now and not yet. Partially here now. Christ's rule seen in and through his church as brothers and sisters submit to him and submit to one another. But it's also not yet fully here, is it? That is, it hasn't fully arrived because, well, not everyone has bowed their knees to Christ yet. If we're honest, there are times where we have a hard time submitting to Christ. And so during this this in-between time, Whereas Christians, we live now as citizens of that heavenly country to come, while we also walk as aliens in this earthly kingdom here. And the author of Hebrews is showing us what that looks like. What does faith look like in a world that is still at enmity with God? Where believers are at once citizens of that heavenly country, but again also still walking by faith as strangers and aliens in this foreign land. The first thing we see is that having faith means that we don't have a real home in this world. Having faith means that we don't have a real home in this world. And you see that at the end of verse 37 and in through verse 38. You see that there? They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is a truth the author has already brought out for us when we saw the life of Abraham. Remember that earlier? There, we're in verse 16. We're reminded that by faith, we seek and desire a better country, a heavenly country. But what does that look like here? Well, that gets fleshed out for us in verses 37 and 38. We seek a better heavenly country because as citizens of that coming country, we are strangers. We are exiles. We are aliens here. This is not our home. 
In fact, the life of faith seems to characteristically be a life of privation. That is, it's at odds with, it's, it's, it's not at odds with being a believer to also struggle with a life of impoverishment. To have faith and to look for that coming kingdom means to hear struggle within that faith. In other words, suffering is not accidental to the life of faith. We read the passage, it seems to be a very part of the very DNA of a Christian's faith. The author tells us that they were destitute, afflicted, tortured. It's interesting, the word torture is the same word for we, where we get our English word timpani. Uh, you know, that big drum at the back of the orchestra where the skin is stretched out and beaten. And that's the idea here of being tortured, destitute. And afflicted. The author tells us that they were destitute. They were deprived of the ordinary necessities of life, of food, clothing, and housing. And not only that, again, closely connected with this is the fact that they were violently oppressed. Not only do they not have a home, but but they suffer violence in this world. You see that in verses 36 and 37. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. You can see this by just taking a quick perusal through the Old Testament and seeing the lives and deaths of those old prophets. To become a prophet in the Old Testament almost always meant a life deprived of life's necessities. The prophets were known to wear sheepskins and goatskins. And it's interesting, when John the Baptist came on the scene right before the beginning of Christ's ministry, what did he choose to wear? Yeah, but the camel's skin. And eating only the bare necessities, locust with some honey. And in the end, he died by being beheaded. You see, this was the average life of a prophet. And we see this with Jeremiah, who was the, as a result of his faithful declaration of the word of God. Jeremiah is beaten. He's stretched out and left out for public ridicule and derision. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah says that people mock him all day long by making songs that make fun of him. In Jeremiah 28, we see he's thrown into a pit, a a muddy well where he's left to sink, and, and, and hopefully his accusers think that he'll die there. Why? All because he faithfully declared the word of God. Not only did he not have a home here, but he suffered violence as a result. And all this should have resonated with the original hearers of Hebrews. Remember Hebrews chapter 10? You can see there in verse 32. Hebrews 10, 32, which says, Remember those earlier days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property. Why? since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see that? They looked to and lived in light of that better and heavenly country to come, and as a result, they joyfully suffered persecution. They were aware that they had no home here, and there was violence as a result of looking to that home there. And we've got to ask the question, why is it that these men and women of faith were put in such tough situations? The answer is because, well, faithfulness to God stands in such clear opposition to the demands of this world. 
Faithfulness to God stands in opposition to the demands of this world. Faithfulness and obedience to what God calls us to means that we do not walk according to the rhythms and drumbeats set by this world. And, and, and when we walk differently from how the world wants us to walk, well, what happens? You can be sure that the world will have no problem in pushing you to the sidelines. For instance, the world today loves to say things like, you know, faith and religious convictions, those should be kept private. Don't bring them into the public square. Which I've never understood how that works or what that really means. Because everybody has convictions and beliefs which they bring to bear upon the public square. I mean, even that statement, right, that that religious beliefs should be kept private is itself a belief. And that person saying it has just brought his belief into the public square telling me how I should and how I should not live. So that when people say, keep your beliefs private, what they really mean is we don't want to hear about your faith. Faith in Jesus Christ and what believing in him demands and means for all of us. Keep that to yourself. And when we don't, That's where it gets uncomfortable. We know that uncomfortability. We've been there before. And for all the talk that today's culture loves to express uh, uh, um, concerning inclusivity and open tolerance, it's shown time and time again, I think it's hypocrisy, in being entirely intolerant and exclusive of any Christian worldview. What is out and out and explicit in places like China or as we prayed this morning in North Korea is much more subtle here where slowly it is the Christian who begins to be pushed to the sidelines, not invited out to happy hour with your co-workers because, you know, you're too Christian, quickly passed over perhaps for a promotion. Maybe you're being sued for your convictions on sexuality and marriage. Or your tax-exempt status as a church or a school is taken away for your beliefs on gender. You see, everybody has beliefs. Presuppositions to how the world works. Beliefs about our existence and and how we should act as people in this world. These are all things that everybody holds at some point by faith. And when those beliefs come into confrontation with the gospel, with people who believe in the gospel, then there comes this, this clash of worldviews. And what this passage is saying, what history bears out, is that it is the Christians who get marginalized. It happened in the early church. It certainly happened in the Reformation. It happened with the Puritans. And it happens all over the world today. Why? Because by and large, the world does not and has not counted Christians worthy of participating in the public square. From the world's perspective, we are unworthy to engage in and and be a part of society's ongoing party. And we know this is the case. The world knows this is the case. Because what we have to say is, well, it's so nauseating to the world. It's ridiculous that we believe in serial monogamy. It's absurd that we believe divorce is wrong. It's preposterous that we wait to have sex before marriage. And when that does happen, we believe it should only be between a man and a woman. And on and on we could go listing out the clear biblical instructions and ethics and ways that we believe and Things that the world thinks strange of us for what we believe. Counting us unworthy to participate in society. Keep your beliefs marginalized and private. Keep that to yourself. Or we'll have to marginalize you ourselves. 
Look what the author says in verse 38, though. Almost as a side comment, but I think so encouraging. Speaking of those who have true faith, he says that the world was not worthy of them. You see that? The author is showing us here is that what we believe, no matter who we are or what it is we believe, but especially so for Christians, what we believe inevitably expresses itself in how we live. Everybody's life is but a simple reflection of what they believe on the inside. And when Christians begin to live out their faith, then that has repercussions on everyone else around them. Faith in God means loving God. And also then loving your neighbors as God wants you to love them. But here's the point. Your neighbors don't always interpret what you're doing as loving them and loving God. And even more so, they usually hate the ways that God has told you to love them. For example... When, out of love for your neighbor, you share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because you love them enough to warn them that hell is real. Well, your neighbor, in love with his own gods and beliefs, and not willing to give up his lifestyle, which flows out of his beliefs, will interpret your love and your warning as narrow-minded, as bigoted, backwards, or prudish. And so you'll be marginalized in one degree or another. And the author is saying that when that happens, the world doesn't know what they have. Their actions show that they're unworthy of the love and influence you've just shown them. The world was not worthy. Friends, this kind of interaction between believers and the unbelieving world is paradigmatic of how Christ interacted with the unbelieving world, isn't it? Wasn't it Jesus himself? who declaring a kingdom of the righteousness of God and calling men everywhere to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ, then also went on to say that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but myself, the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his own head. Jesus himself was kicked out of his own hometown, an unwanted prophet and despised even by his own brothers. And so as we walk in conformity with Christ our Lord, we do so bearing the shame of his name. Looked down upon because he was looked down upon. Hated because he was hated. Destitute, afflicted, and mistreated because those are the marks of being in Christ. He who is supremely afflicted and mistreated and of whom it can be said supremely that the world was not worthy of him. So I think in one sense the author is almost calling Christians to wear their affliction with pride. For it's there in the suffering of your faith where Christ is is almost whispering from heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. But we need to be clear on something here. And I'm going to go on a rabbit trail, but it needs to happen. The impoverishment that we see here is an impoverishment due to oppression and persecution. You see that in verse 37, right? They went about in skins of sheep and goats, not able to buy the acceptable fashions of the day. Why? Because they were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. In other words, this was not a hard life because of poor financial planning. They weren't destitute because they made bad choices on how to spend their time and money. And in this day and age where the persecution that we see here in this text is not entirely normal for us, we need to make this point. The hard life we see here in the text is due entirely to the unbelieving world hating God and therefore being opposed to God's people. And here's why we need to make the point. 
there are some people who are destitute and walking around in skins of sheep and goats only because they make poor life choices. But they'll use this language and say things like, oh, it's, it's because of my unbelieving boss and my ungodly co-workers that I can't get ahead in my job. I'm being persecuted for my faith. When in reality, it may just be your work ethic or your lack of personal skills that need to change. Your faith really has nothing to do with the tough situation you're in right now. And we need to put that out there so that we're not covering up bad decisions underneath the guise of religious language. Because when believers see that, when unbelievers see that happen, you using the Bible as an excuse for your personal failures, it actually does way more harm to the gospel witness. It tarnishes the gospel. And so we want to be clear here of the distinction that not all instances of being destitute are due to persecution. But then there's also those folks who really are in tough situations and really quite are on the verge of wandering in deserts and living in caves, not through any fault of their own, but through the mysteries of God's providence and a sequence of life events that worked against them and their prosperity. And so we want to say on one side of it that it wasn't their poor decisions, but also on the other side, it's not pure persecution. It's just what life brought them, and they're in this tough position. And so again, the Bible has room for that kind of thinking. And you can read through the book of Ecclesiastes and see how we're to think about that and respond in wisdom to those situations. But this passage here isn't addressing that either, per se. But then we also need to bring up this because there are other people who are doing really well. And they are able to to buy new clothes and send their kids to school, not wearing sheepskins and goat hair, but North Face and New Balance. Look, that's not necessarily an indictment against them. That because they're well off and not necessarily destitute, that therefore they're not really faithful. Paul's explicitly clear here when he's writing in 1 Timothy 6 that the rich of this present age, speaking of those Christians who have much, he says they have it because ultimately it was God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so therefore, says Paul, they're to do good and and to continue to be rich, but be rich in good works and, and be generous with what you have, ready to share with everything that you've been given. In other words, it's okay to be wealthy and to have nice things. In other words, I don't want us to take this passage here in Hebrews 11 and kind of use it as a jumping off point to support a theology of Christians always being broke, broken, and burdened. We speak so often, especially here from this pulpit, against the dangers of the prosperity gospel. Really, that ugly and horrible theology of health and wealth. It's not good, and we hate it, rightly so. But that all too often, I think we're tempted to swing way too far in the other direction and embrace a poverty gospel, where the truly spiritual or godly people, uh, those are the ones who have so little in life. The Bible says that in Christ, the key is not what you have or don't have, but it's actually your godly contentment. Contentment in either having a lot or contentment in having a little. It's not... Our bank account, that's the barometer of whether or not we're faithful. No, it's what we do with what we have or don't have. It's how we live in reflection of Christ with what we have or don't have that shows the power of faith. And look, this whole paragraph in Hebrews 11, I think, kind of highlights this very truth for us, doesn't it? 
Who does the author begin talking about in the first part of the paragraph that we looked at last week, verses 32 through 35? He's addressing those who, by faith, are living lives with success and victories right now. They're prospering. They're obtaining promises. They're being made strong. But now, in the second half of the paragraph, the author addresses those who are weak and destitute and struggling to make ends meet. And the truth we see in this paragraph is that within the people of God, these these two realities are almost always existing side by side. There are those of... Uh, Those of us now, and I was just speaking to someone last week, a very member who was telling me, man, this season of life is so good. Uh, Things are going well. The Lord is providing so much. Things are comfortable. And all I could do is say, amen, that's great. But then there are others of us, aren't there? Where life is so hard. It seems like it's just wave after wave after wave of tough situations. As Daniel read Psalm 88 of being underneath the affliction of the Lord's providence, that psalm is for you. Life stinks right now. And it's a struggle some mornings even to get out of bed. But in God's providence, here we are, all of us side by side, singing together to the same God who's given some of us great times of peace and comfort and other of us times of struggle and anxiety. Do you remember Paul's instructions to the church in Rome? Where in Romans 12, he tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And what's Paul assuming? He's saying that there will be people within your church who will rejoice over good things that are happening in their lives. And and all of us, we're to be happy for them and rejoice with them for what God is doing in their midst. But at the same time, we need to realize that there are also people weeping in our church. And because we are all members, one uh, one another together of the same body, well, we need to weep with them too, seeing how God has allowed trials and and times of struggle to come upon them. And we do this together. It's together where we build each other up in faith, encouraging one another wherever we are to go to God, resting ultimately in him, whether we're in time of comfortable strength or uncomfortable struggling and weakness and affliction. It's here at the end of Hebrews 11 where the author is reminding us that within the life of faith, following after God, you see both happen. Faithfulness has its mountaintop experiences as well as its deep, dark valleys. I think this leads us to our next point we see in the passage, which is this. There is an inevitable suffering that comes with faith. There is an inevitable suffering that comes with faith. Suffering for our faith is an inevitability. It comes with the territory. And here's why. It's because Christ, our representative, our Savior himself, had to suffer. And as Jesus himself promised the disciples that were with him, and by implication he also promises to us, remember he says that if the world hated him, well then the world will certainly hate you. This is why in Matthew 16, Jesus calls anyone who believes and puts their faith in Jesus to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, says Jesus, will in the end lose it. But whoever loses his life now for my sake will in the end find eternal life. What's Jesus saying here? Is he a glutton for pain and agony? No, he's merely laying out the principle that's true for any and all believers in Jesus, a, a principle and pattern established by his own life, and it's this. 
There is no crown without the cross, and there is no life outside of death. And this principle, this pattern, lays the very foundation of God's grace towards us. God's grace is not a cheap grace. It's not, as so many of us are used to thinking about it, some kind of sentimental attitude of God's part where he he looks at us and and he looks at our sin and in a whim of emotional sentimentalism says, oh, I can't stay mad at you. Let's just let bygones be bygones. Now that's cheap grace. A grace that costs nothing and therefore a grace that actually accomplishes nothing. Now the gospel of Jesus Christ dying for sinners is the gospel of costly grace. It cost God everything to redeem sinful people. His only begotten son, who when he was dying on the cross and had all of our sins imputed on him, God the Father turned his gaze away in forsaken disgust from his eternally beloved son. It cost the Father everything. And it cost the Son everything. Jesus Christ giving up glory and heaven for our sake and then giving up his life in full death as a man upon the cross. It was out of this death, this costly event, that true grace could be shown to us, that we could be forgiven. But it was also out of this costly event, Jesus' death on our behalf, which led to his resurrected life on our behalf. The suffering of the cross was only the doorway to the glory of the crown, where out of death came eternal life. And so here's this pattern, the pattern that now all followers of Christ enter into. There is, for those of us who are in Christ, an inevitable suffering. One of the tragedies of modern evangelicalism is that we've taught our young people that to be a Christian is to enter into a life of total peace and total joy, and and we end up describing the Christian life in terms of this ever-growing euphoria and ever-present bliss, which never wavers or dies down. But as we sang earlier this morning, when the powers of hell are suddenly unleashed against them and shake their souls with terror, as is common to everyone who follows after Christ, Then these young Christians start saying, well, what's happening? No one ever told me about this. And they think perhaps, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Or they think there's something wrong with their spiritual life. Or even worse, they think there's something wrong with God and beginning to forsake him. And so they they vainly go and search for experience after experience after experience. That's the new opium of today's Christian in order to recapture that spiritual high that they first had when they became a believer. But that's not the pattern. The pattern is that there's no cross without the crown. Life through suffering and death. We bear our cross and walk through suffering in conformity to the pattern set by our Savior. And to be sure, there is victory there. There's victory in Christ. But often it's a joy and peace and victory found in and through suffering, death. It's a Victory through his death. And look, it's a great and worthy avenue to walk in, precisely because it's the way in which Christ gained his victory, right? We can't lose sight of this truth that Christ's crown only came through his cross, and so too it must be with us. And let me add this point quickly for those of you going through real affliction right now. By God's grace, your costly suffering actually may be noticed and serve as a witness to some people. People 
really, I think, begin to notice and make sense of true faith, not when it gets you something, but when it costs you everything. And look, it's out of God's perfect wisdom and and his goodness that oftentimes a believer is brought to that point of exhaustion and suffering. And we know God can deliver you out of it. He can do it like that. It's not like God can't do it. But so often God will graciously allow us to go through those things in order to bring out his intended purposes. Perhaps to bring that unbelieving person who's watching you to say, ah, that's faith. They really do believe in a real Christ. To get them through that? Wow. I think I get it now. This brings us to our final point, which is this. Because of the resurrection, we can endure suffering and can have real hope in the world to come. Remember our first point? was that the faithful don't have a home in this world and, and we likewise suffer violence and persecution because of that? But in verse 35, our author is showing us that in Christ, we can endure those realities well as we look forward to that better home to come. Look there at verse 35. The first part of the verse, which we looked at last week, talked about women who had received back their their dead by resurrection, right? The uh, the author probably had in mind 2 Kings 4, where the prophet Elisha raises the Shunammite son back from the dead. Her son had died, and, and she immediately, by faith, went to Elisha, the prophet, asking him to bring her son back to life. And he did. It's an amazing story. But of course, in light of Christ, the author of Hebrews can say, that's all he did. Though the Shunammite son was brought back to life through a resurrection, he still, later in life, well, he still had to die again. He couldn't, at the end of the day, escape death. But look what he says in the rest of verse 35. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, there was a better resurrection to be obtained than simply rising from the dead like the Shunammite son or simply rising from the dead like Lazarus from the grave. All those resurrected people, they ended up dying again. But there's a better resurrection yet to be obtained. And look, the author's use of the word better, it's so striking. It's a technical word for him. It's the main word probably that ties almost all of Hebrews together, right? Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews tells us that the sonship of Jesus is far better than the ministry of angels. Then in chapters 2 and 3 and 4, we see how the the message and the the covenant that Jesus brings is better than that of Moses. In chapter 5, we see that Jesus is the better high priest. In chapter 6, 7, Jesus is better than Melchizedek. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is the better high priest and mediator of a new and better covenant. In chapter 10, Jesus is seen as the better atoning sacrifice, better than bulls and goats. And in the beginning of chapter 11, the author says that by faith, Abraham looked to Jesus, seeking in him a better heavenly country. And now at the climax of Hebrews 11, we see that in Jesus Christ, there is a better resurrection. Jesus died. But Jesus also rose up from the grave by his own divine power. And and in that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we literally see the first death blow to death itself. Jesus never died again. Death lost its grip, its death grip on him forever. And so the Bible tells us he's alive. Now, forevermore alive at the right hand of the Father. 
Let that sink in. Jesus is alive. And here's the good news. Everyone who believes in Jesus and is made one with him by faith has also died to death and has obtained that better resurrection. It's no wonder that the New Testament never refers to Christians as dying, but rather at the end of their life, them just falling asleep. In Christ, death is gone. And in Christ, there is real resurrection life. So who are these people that the author lists here? Well, as one theologian puts it, they were the blood royal of heaven. The triumph of faith seen in these afflicted souls. It's not always obvious to the naked eye. And certainly not so to the unbelieving world. But from the standpoint of faith, they were crowned with glory through the thorns of their persecution. And that truth allows us to endure. What conclusion do we tend to come to when we see poor, wretched victims who have been killed for their faith? Poor believers being hunted like dogs as they hide in caves and live as refugees in the wilderness. Do we say, oh, how sad? Or do we say, ah, these are the princes of God's kingdom here upon earth, citizens of heaven of whom the world is not worthy? Do we look out at those Christians who have been beheaded for their faith and say, ah, there, there's the beauty and glory of Jesus? When men looked at Christ, bruised and bloodied on the cross, spit dripping down his face from the mockers and accusers below, Who would have thought that in that moment they were seeing and beholding the glory of God? There in the ugliness and horror of the crucifixion, God was revealing to all of us the clearest expression of his love and grace. He loved us so much. Look at my son on the cross dying for you. The beauty of the gospel. So do you see what the author is doing here? He's teaching us that suffering is not accidental to the life of faith. It belongs natively to the Christian life because it was an inherent part of Christ's sacrificial life. And because of that, suffering can now be endured with real hope. Because of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, we can participate in that pattern, enduringly so. In Christ, suffering is only but the means to glory. It's God's work in bringing us closer to home. Our persecution is God's work in bringing us closer to Jesus. I wanted to end here by reading 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18. I think the whole sermon could be summed up with how Paul puts it here. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7, We have this treasure, this gospel pattern, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Verse 8, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but we're not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but that's life for you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, 
I believed and so I spoke. Well, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that the grace extends to more and more people, and it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, it's actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen here in this world, but to the things that are not seen there in that heavenly world to come. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, we are citizens of that eternal kingdom to come. Suffer well. Let's pray.